Bakwa magazine. Creative non-fiction. African literature. Short stories. Photography. Readings. Interviews. Literary criticism. Literature. Poetry. Comics. Photography. Music. Interviews. Literature. Critique. Bakwa. 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 Bakwa magazine. Hello, you're listening to Backwacast, a podcast from Backwa Magazine, and I'm your host, Leslie Mia. Do you realize that all these scientific things that catch, captivates their interest and makes them dream, there's hardly anyone who tells them that, well, you can do that. Today's episode, we sit with Janet Fofan to talk about her childhood technology and the relevance of practicality in today's educational curriculum. Janet Fofan is the co-founder of Tessa Academy. She's a teacher and also a tech entrepreneur who has a sole aim to empower a lot of Cameroonian young girls and women into the field of technology. Janet, thank you once again. Thank you. The first question we have is... Where did you grow up and how did that end up affecting the kind of work that you do right now? I grew up in Bamenda. Um, I was born in Bamenda and then my father was a policeman and then to travel around the districts in Bamenda. Like he would work in Bali, he would work in Boya, he would work in uh, Banso. So we found ourselves traveling in small communities and local districts and then communing with other civil servant children whose parents were working for the government and then it was a small exciting community because we would go to these places it's foreign to us it's not our village and then we tend to learn from children around us other communities and learn new things from them what ordinarily we would not learn from our own community, so that helped me. Okay. And from that point of getting all this information from the community, how did you move from a learner to someone who wanted to make things happen with technology? Pretty much, technology has always existed in our livelihoods. Just it was done differently. As young kids, we would make our own cars, right? With bamboo, bamboo cars, with the slippers, and then we always had tools in the in our pockets. Like I remember, my mother would beat us up, like warn us that if she ever finds a blade in anybody's clothes when she's washing, she would struggle that person. <laughs> because we always had these things we would pick and put in our pockets, so that we can save for later use. And there were always corners in the house we would hide things that we thought were useful. And then I had mostly brothers and one sister, which that in itself played a lot. So my brothers were exciting people that were always exploring. We would walk around and play around the neighborhood. It was safe. Being in these places, small communities, the advantage is that they were always safe places. And the, the notion of fear was a little bit far. We were very adventurous. We would do different kinds of adventures, like build when it rains, we would struggle to go to where there is a, a height 
and try to build a hydroelectric. How did you find out about these things? Did you have any books? Did you have anybody who was teaching you? I mean, how would you know that you could actually build something like a hydroelectric plant? So, books. Books were the thing. At that time, TV was not very fashionable. That was the so, uh, 60s, 70s? No, the 70s. We're getting to the 80s. Okay. Because I started really understanding these things. It was in the 80s. The 70s, I was still too young. I was more or less too much of a baby. Um, in the 80s. So TV was not very fashionable. And the things they would show on TV would not be things that taught you to build something. It was always... What we thought of TV was always film, movie, or... Ding, ding. <laughs> so... <laughs> yeah. So either we're watching cartoons or... But we didn't have a TV for a very long time. TVs were not very fashionable or no not even fashionable they were not accessible to everyone so we would actually go and sometimes pray on people's windows to watch tv and then come back and be beaten for having gone to the neighbors to watch tv which was still fine but the things we would watch on those tvs uh, those cartoons that got us to mimic our own cartoons using shadows so we had this black box my brother and i used to make I'm the Sith of eight kids, and then I have a brother behind me and a sister. So immediately in front of me, the brother that I had in front of me and the one behind me, plus my sister, we made a very good team. So we were four, two boys, two girls. And we could make a football team of two, two. <laughs> and then, or we could make a TV box with my junior brother and junior sister being the audience, and then me and my elder brother actually being the people running the cartoon with the candle or a touch and a screen in front that would give shadows to give different images like yeah. marionettes. Yeah. So we actually really made marionette cartoons like um, Looky Look, yeah. draw Looky Look and carve him out and actually have uh, uh, Scooby-Doo. Yeah. We would really make Scooby-Doo and draw all of those things and actually have them mimic them and do our own kind of uh, band. And run it in the evening. Okay. So that was our entertainment. We Did you have any, any, any kids in the community coming to watch as well? It was just you and the family and everybody? So the kids that would come and watch regularly would be neighbor's kids when their parents were not around. <laughs> After that, they would have to run back home okay. because it's evening. So you were bad influence? Not quite. <laughs> so, not quite, but I think in the day we were too busy exploring. Okay. We are talking about farming communities. And we would go to harvest like coffee beans for a farmer in exchange for oranges. So it was all exciting. There was freedom. And then we would, we would go to harvest cola nuts for a farmer, maybe an old farmer. We know if this farmer needs help, we can go there and do stuff. And then we would pick all old slippers and maybe old torches and um, go to the, the, the hick moment was... Like the, the, the aha moment for us was when there was this Canadian pastor who came with his family of three. No, there were four of them. Himself, his wife, and two kids. The kids were called Faith and Nathan. And then they were living just beside our home. And that to us was really exciting. That was in Bansal. And those were the moments, those, I think those are the years that I had my whole um, character formation. Imprinted. I was, I was like eight, nine, ten, eleven. Within those years, those were very, very.
defining moments in who I ended up becoming. When these white people came and they were staying around our home and then we would always go and stand there and cry and look at what are these white people are like? What are they actually doing? What do they eat? And then we'll go to their pit and see cans, canned food, different kinds of things we've never seen before. And then curiously, they used to throw magazines oh. and books. Uh. So that white man's pit was a <laughs> <laughs> was a cornucopia. <laughs> so the white man's pit, we had another discovery. So that pastor's pit, he was a Baptist pastor. So you would think of all the writings those Baptists would make and the magazines that came from Canada and stuff. And then they would drop them in that pit sometimes. And then those kids, the the the, the white Nathan and Faith, Nathan yeah. and Faith, were fond of reading their books and throwing them at the lawns or leaving them wherever they were. And that was a good place to quickly look through the pages and like discover like, oh my gosh, so this actually happened. And then you would beckon your brothers to come and see, look, there's something here. And then they look at And then it also meant something. You were forced to read. Us. <laughs> because the majority of the books we had were maybe my parents would buy few, very few storybooks when they could. And then you have your class books. Then maybe sometimes we would struggle to read my father's newspapers. But then these books were colorful and beautiful and they really told stories of some place you would never imagine. So we, we became like explorers. We started exploring and really enjoying this whole new adventure. So the imagination of another world became real. Like it dawned on us that there's some other place. That people do things that we've not seen around here. Yes. And then we were even more blessed when the white people discovered that we were interested in those books and then they started inviting us to come read the books. Think of it, they had a whole library in their home and then when they invited us into that library, we stood their books on end, we were like, oh, <laughs> when we okay. start? books, everywhere were books. I'm, sure, I'm not too sure if there were so many books, but imagine at my age, yeah. what yeah. I would think. So we, we could now access the library, read a little bit and then run back to our home. Your parents know about this new relationship with the neighbors? I'm not too sure because they were always maybe going to work or going to the market and then after school. Because we did the same things like all the kids in the community. We had a, we had a garden. We, we had to go and sell with my mother too. And then we were, we, when there's no water, we had to also go fetch water. So all of these things, we really had to find the windows, like in between all of these kettles, and find a small window. So if you think about what a kid can do in one hour, be careful. Very careful. One hour is precious time. Yes. One hour is a long time. Yeah. Because when I look at today, I mean, one hour is time you would have gone around and done a lot of stuff and then come back and like. I didn't do anything. Yeah. So clearly, you've been building things from a very long time. You already yes. loved it, making it community-based because of the way your family was built. And then you had now access to information in the form of books. Yes, I had access. Yeah. So from that point, how did your secondary school years look like in shaping the way you ended up working now? Plus, I need to add one thing that the whole community, if you have an explorative and adventurous mind like we did, 
being a siblings it's very nice when you have siblings almost of the same ages and the, the, if you have that adventurous mind you make your happiness wherever you can like even bird hunting like we were not actually bird hunting to kill birds we we did have cages where we would put set traps and actually catch birds and every time we made an animal that had a problem, maybe a bird that had fallen from its nest, we would take it to the, we had a bird hospital that we built behind our house. <laughs> so, or a bird that broke a wing yeah. or, so we, we kind of like figured out to use the paracetamol that we had at home and then maybe bandage a broken leg or a wing or something. And sometimes some of the birds healed, sometimes some died. <laughs> then when it healed, we would let the bird fly away. We had a very big cage. And that is how, um, when I transitioned onto secondary school, it was still... Same mentality. Same. A lot of adventure. And then I was lucky. My, the, my brother directly in front of me was very, very adventurous. He would literally do make anything out of anything. So sometimes I needed to be there to hold the rubber for him to cut. He would like hold it here, hold it here, and then he cuts. So I was like his additional hand. So I was always there to do some of these things with him, which helped me. Because as you're assisting him, I was literally assisting, I was learning a lot, and then it became a part of class. And then in secondary school, I went to an old girl's secondary school. Which school was that? A Lady of Lords. Okay. Which again, there was no distinction like, okay, you have to do the same things like everybody else and survive. So there was nothing like if they're cutting grass, they should go and bring boys from where to cut grass. Would you say your your given your background and the way you grew <clears> up? The way you, you, you approach school at that particular age, since everybody's coming from different places, was it different? Did you think, did you feel like you stood out from the rest of the girls in class? Or was everybody as adventurous as you? I'm, I'm not sure it was easy to see adventure just like that. There's a conformist theory when you get into that mix. You need to conform. So there are rules. You have to be here, then you have to be. So if you have some kind of like creativity in you, it may only show up when you have a class or something that links to that, then you realize, oh, or if they say, okay, singing, people should sing, then you would, if they don't sing, you wouldn't know who really sings well. So again, with the educational system we have in secondary high school, all this small, small creative stuff, you will not really see it like, an important part of the education that we had so you would not like stand out like then because you're doing the same thing like everyone and then you want to pretty much stay in conformity so you are in a situation where you're all put in a box and you all have to behave in a particular way now I think most of what I had already registered in my formative years that gave me my character formation actually started coming out after university because the whole school curricula and everything conforms you to behave in a specific way puts you in a box tells you well this thing you know that's fine but this is what you have to know so all of those things pretty much came alive again when i had an opportunity to now teach students so whatever thing i had in front of me that one just came naturally and then i had to because I wasn't expected to score points. 
yeah. I was just expected to perform. So if I had to score points, I would now sit in the mind of the teacher or the examiner and tell, give him what he wants. I would not give him my creativity because he may find that pretty much stupid. Yeah. Would you consider yourself a teacher first or a maker first? I think I'm a maker first. Okay. But you followed a teaching curriculum. Yes. Why was that? Um, teaching, pedagogy in itself is something that really does not have a lot of formula. The way you pass knowledge is pretty much as a function of what skill, what art you use to teach people. Like the most brilliant people maybe who have scored the best points in pedagogy may not be the necessarily maybe the best teachers. So it's, it's about inspiration. Pedagogy, it's beyond rules. It's how you inspire people from what angle, what perspective you take to impart knowledge. Sometimes it's just from your way of living, your way of being that people get inspired. So you just, I mean, find what works for what audience. Some audiences would not take the kind of way you would teach the didactics um, methodology. methodology, would not go with some kind of people from some kind of culture. Meanwhile, in others, it would be the best. So as a function of the audience, you just have to fix and see what works best. When you look back now to the university years, before you started doing a lot more of what people are writing articles about now these days, do you see any, any event, person, lecturer, or something that may have moved you to actually increase your interest in the specific, in the STEM and what you're doing today? Yes, I had a, a, a lecturer. He was actually the director of my school and he taught us courses in circuit theory, Dr. Ningo. He, he was... He stood out as a lecturer and the way he would approach things and um, the way he would reason out things. So he was one of those lecturers that would not expect you to give him back exactly what he's giving you. He would stretch your brain a little bit and, and get you thinking. He was always good at taking you out of your comfort. And, and then I'm sure he, he was really different because he studied in the U.S. Contrary to most of our lecturers who had more of a francophone system of education that was like maybe regurgitation and stuff. So he was always this amazing person that when he comes to class, everyone is like, either you are inspired or you panic. <laughs> Two things. <laughs> but luckily for me, he's always inspired me because, again, you would see each of my thesis topics, he was... Um, he was a supervisor of each of my topics at both levels from the first cycle to the second cycle and each of the topics we took at the time internet was not like what it is today what year was that? in 1998 okay so we were doing things about the internet and we were looking at collision detection and we were looking at uh, routing on the internet and stuff like that and using packet tracer so I'm like 20 years back and then I see Students walking around with packages and like, ah, is this okay? Um, am I? So imagine when I did stuff like that, and then today it's new for students today, which you would expect that knowledge has gone really fast, and this should be a part of something that they've learned earlier on. So you see, he was good at pushing you to discover more and more and more. Because, like, designing a local area network for 
for, for my university campus was something I did with him. So today when I see people doing Cisco and then talking about lands and wines when they've not yet done the practical part of it, I'm like, Oh, lucky. <laughs> it, it almost feels as though you designed your own curriculum because you, you, the things you were interested in, you found a way to get people who would work with you on it. Do you is that is that a push for your work with your school? Is that what you're trying to do? Being able to put people in positions where they don't just learn for the sake of learning, but to be able to apply what they want to. Okay. Of course, we we must find a way of making education relevant. There must be some relevance to what you learn. If not, again, there's this disconnect. It's not for just any reason that you find graduates not knowing what to do. Right? They've, they've, there's, 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 they've gone through some kind of like detachment from schoolwork and reality. So the schoolwork has been presented to them as an abstraction that you need to understand to win points in exchange for points. So the connect between school and your everyday is missing. That's a missing piece. It's missing. It's completely missing. So if you go, I mean, you're put in some office. Let's take, for example, like, I'm a civil servant, okay? And then I'm put in an office and I'm like, charge d'études. Where I presently work, we have to produce teaching resources for teachers, which means that we are put in position to be able to ameliorate the curriculum. Now, how about me saying that I don't have work at workplace? Like, I don't know what to do. How about that? Does that make sense? Who creates the work? Like, once you're employed, you have to create work. You have to make it happen. You have to figure out what is it, what is my contribution? What can I do? But you see, we are wired the other way around, top down. Someone should come and tell me what to do. Oh, I'm waiting for my boss. To do what? How? How can you wait for someone on your own competence? Your CV says you're this, and then suddenly your CV and your brain belongs to someone else. <laughs> I, can, I can almost hear the, the frustration you're talking about, the way you convert when, I mean, the beginning before the recording, where you said this is your own way of solving the issue. Instead of complaining about it, you're, you take all that anger and that frustration and you put it in creating the kind of platforms that you want to see. Yes. How's it working out so far? I think it's good enough, fair enough, because I can hear some of my students say, I want to, and this is exactly what I want to do. And they say, I am building this, and this is how it's supposed to function. Well, without someone telling them what to do. Okay. That's one step. And then I've heard a few people who work with me come to me and say, well, look, this is what we have done. And so far, these are the results. And this is the next step. Well, that's how it's supposed to be. How about me being after a hundred people to tell them what to do? Well, I'll drop dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. So, just your life is you. Like, what, what, what are you here to do? What do you want to show? It's you. It's nobody else. Because my ideal world is one where everyone is taking care of themselves and doing what they are supposed to do. Fair enough. We need teachers, we need mentors. So I could mentor you if you came with your idea, right? And you're talking to me about this brilliant idea you have. I would be a mentor. I would be a teacher. 
Teachers are mentors by design. So I would listen to you without telling you you're wrong. Because who, who says I'm right? Because I have a teacher degree? No, I'm not sure. Alright? So, I would listen to you, and then we would together be able to brainstorm, explore other options, and then I may be able to maybe either learn from you, or I can kind of like canalize your energy towards one thing. From what? My experience, not necessarily my knowledge. Experience is something that you use, it's just experience, like, okay, well, how about this, or how about that? And then you still have the choice to choose maybe both and then fail and then choose plan B, it's still fine. So it's it's not again I'm really frustrated as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really frustrated because there's so many people who prefer to have uh, the instant gratification. I want it now, it should happen now. I've not even tried and I'm not sure I'm ready to try and it should happen. So it's annoying. That's interesting because I actually assumed that it was just our generation, like the younger one, that had the same frustration with the people who want to get results now, 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 without right. working for it. So what, what I want to find out now is, what else is there in your... It's, it's interesting because most women in STEM seem to have the same way of looking at the world. The same way, they're very progressive, they're very innovative, they're very open to new ideas and challenge the way things are going. But as a teacher, as an educator, what, what do you think in your field is something that most people out of it don't really understand or that you hold particularly dear that most people even within the field think you're wrong or think it's, it's biased. Do you have any, any views that you, that you hold strongly to that most people think, eh, I don't believe in that? Yeah, there are many of them. Okay. I may just say two. One of them is how much power STEM has on you. I'm sure many people have never ever been able to sit down and imagine how much better their lives may have been if they understood the power of science, technology, engineering, and math in their everyday world. Let me take just math. Every day, like from the moment you wake up from your bed, you're looking at, staring at some clock or whatever. Math. The things mathematics do to you on a daily basis. I wish we knew that. Then we would tell our math teachers to not waste our time and scare us from math and take it serious. Look, everything trickles into a basin. Like we keep talking about adding, subtracting, late, early. How much? Math. It's math. And then someone tells you, well, I'm not too sure my, this, this, I, I can figure out my way. Technology. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how I will get to this person. And, and, and I have all of these things in front of me to do. There's so much power in these things that if we understood them and then process them differently. See, cold, everything you do in the morning, if you, sometimes you wake up and say, I have become a better person now. I'll go to bed at this time. I'll wake up at this time. I'll do this. I'll do that. Now, add if and else you have coded. Yeah. Just put if, and then you say else, that's a line of code. If I wake up at 5, I will do this, this, this. Else, what is the else? You did not wake up at 5. So you don't do the things. Two you options. You're either 1 or 0. Yes or no. Binary code. Thank you. 
So we are always looking for that midpoint in something that doesn't exist. And the way people disagree is when we tell them that, well, listen, there's actually no midpoint. The mid, what you consider midpoint is actually failure, it's below one. And they're like, no, it's no gray area. <laughs> that midpoint is somewhere below one, it's half. Half is less than one. And when there's no electricity, there's darkness. Right? Yeah. On a pulse signal, well, the poles cannot suspend. It must go all the way down, okay, to zero, to be able to not exist. If it's hanging somewhere, can you actually connect two wires midway? I say, well, it was so close. As long as there is a space, there's no connection. That's it. Okay? Yeah. So many people do not agree with that. And many people have hardly agreed with the fact that machines will potentially put them out of function. Like they've never seen, they've, they've still, not that they've never seen, they've seen, but they still keep denying the power of artificial intelligence. That's an interesting topic. Thank you. I'm glad you brought that up. It's, um, what do you think we can do, not to stop it, but where, what, where should we be gearing towards now, for example, given that AI would take over a lot of things? And I suppose you mean a lot of, jobs that we take for granted, for example, mm-hmm. like mechanical jobs, things that don't really require human presence. So in, in your opinion, where should we be focusing on energy? Because first of all, clearly you're, you're very much in system. That is clear. What about the other fields? Where else do you think we should be focusing our work, our energy towards as humans, not just as Cameroonians? Humans should... Can I... Do I have an answer? I doubt it. There's no wrong answer, does that? But I think humans should be very creative. Like, in as much as this machine, for it to do whatever thing you want it to do, it's you who decides. So be creative to decide machines that can do other things that have not been done before. Again, in our current dispensation in this society, opportunities are enormous. Right? Everything is literally virgin. Yeah, it's it's interesting to say that because some people will say, for example, that is because you've had the privilege to see these things firsthand. You've had the privilege to work with people. And most when, when you say that to somebody, for example, who's a graduate, he will tell you, well, you say that because you have money, you have a job. That's why you can afford to stay. You're privileged. That's why you can say that there are opportunities. So what, do you, what would you say to a young person, for example, who didn't do STEM? Because when you use the word creativity, what comes first to my mind is writing art, literature, that's what I think of creativity. Mm. But then you use creativity with code and how you can actually find a solution around the problem. Right. Yes. So what would you tell somebody who thinks that creativity is just, like me, who thinks creativity is just art? How, uh, would, how do you apply creativity mm-hmm. on your day-to-day basis? <laughs> okay, creativity. Creativity is everywhere. Do you know that when I came here and um. I asked for Mac and I have an appointment with him and then I I was told, well, he doesn't work here, okay? He doesn't work here and we don't know anyone like that. And then maybe you should call his phone or do what way. Well, everything except telling you, please sit down and wait and make a phone call. Ordinarily, you'll be told, well, what is this for? You'll be asked more questions so that the answers given to you would be appropriate, right? Yes. Well, none of that was done. The first thing was, maybe you should just walk out of this door because we don't know that person. That was the message. 
creative like well i have an appointment with this person at this time at this place i'm going to sit down here and i'll send him a text message because he may be in a taxi and i don't want him to take off his phone or all of those and the noise i'll send him a message to see where he is and i'll be patient and i'll wait maybe he's somewhere inside the building if maybe else. this person doesn't know him right yes else well i have a choice to go out there and say, well, I'm standing here and nobody's receiving me and I've not seen you. That's creativity. Which I know for sure, I know many people who will be like, well, I, I did you go me? <laughs> right? Yeah. Then I also know of many people who have never even accepted that failure in itself is a learning process. Because it's okay to try something, let it not work, and then you're redoing it again, taking into account that part that did not work. Were you patient enough? Were you vigilant enough to see what went wrong? Because creativity doesn't come from nowhere. Like, think of the person that is carving maybe a mortar. Did he ever show you his first mortar? Well, you will not maybe never like to see his first mother, right? <laughs> so he keeps perfecting his art. And then at some point he discovers, well, there's something I could do that would... Creativity comes from doing it over... You've, first of all, you must have the basic, the foundational knowledge, which is what I told you that in, our, in my... For me, in my tender years... That foundation needs to be there. You must have done a lot of things and seen a lot of stuff and read a lot of things to be able to have a foundation on which you can come and embed creativity. Creativity doesn't anchor on nothing. Creativity anchors from something that existed. Like the person who carves masks knows the basic, like anytime, any day he can do a basic mask before he can add anything creative on it. If not, well... Simply replicating over and over and doing the same thing. He wouldn't even build anything. What does he do? What does he know? You must have the basis. All of the education we have, like you spoke about someone who has a degree and is frustrated that they're not creative. Well, maybe they didn't pay attention to the kind of learning they were doing. That's an interesting point. So from from the way you the the way your your journey has been, you've had the opportunity to really engage with your environment on on an individual level, yeah. where maybe parental influence was just enough to guide you in a direction because you knew you were safe, you were with family, you were in a community that actually let you be yourself. Yeah. But for some people, they they grew in communities where they're either closed off with just parents and the kids, and that's it, or parents tend to influence their choices in a way that is not aligned with who they are as people. So they end up in positions where they've done all this educational journey, but where they are now is not who they want to be. And there's that frustration between what they really want to do, where they are, and the next step they have to take. So it gets a little bit complicated. And I think that the work you're doing, for example, with the kids is amazing, getting them to really make those choices, to make those decisions. What I want to find out now is how do you change the conversation with parents? I'm sure they, I mean, the kids who come to your school have parents who maybe see the world differently or not. So do you have different conversations with parents about the way they bring up their kids or how do you go about that? So when we have the opportunity, we invite parents. First thing I, I tell every parent that comes my way is, it's not about the grades in school. Cut that off. Find that thing that's special about your child and dwell on it. Because again, 
these are just children and then you you I mean the fact that you had a kid doesn't mean that the kid's mind should be should be exactly what you decide no that's an individual on their own they have their own thoughts they have their own in as much as we 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 we, we grow the way we grow we, you know in our societies people even think babies don't think You've seen that a lot, right? <laughs> Not yet, but I... That he's supposed to do this. He's yeah, supposed to do yeah. this just because I gave him. But these are people with minds on their own. And they have different thoughts. And they have a way they want to be. You can guide them. And then, make sure you hold conversations that are more or less balanced. If you want to take some bad habit away from me, well, propose something in return and fill in that gap. You can't just take away something that I own and call it bad manners and then hold it and then you've not given me a feeling for that. Else, I would struggle to fill in that gap. It comes back. It comes right back. It could be worse. <laughs> exactly. So, if you want to show me the way, well, don't just say, stand there and go nowhere. That's an alternative. You could actually even tell me, well, there's some good in going in circles. So you can do these circles. Uh, it's, it's preferable to do circles <laughs> than to just do nothing. Alright? You cannot be in the middle of nowhere. And for those young people who maybe have been educated and then they're stuck or something, when I meet them again, I'm like, there is something called reinventing oneself. Look at me, for example. I told you, at the time I was going to school, there were no smartphones. And the code we were writing, sometimes we wrote code on paper. And then had to figure out where to go and... Get a compiler. <laughs> compile it. I don't know how it goes, but... When you realize that you have a gap, fill it up. Do what you're supposed to do. There are tons of free programs that are offered every day. But I know too many people who prepare to do nothing and fill up that space. So even when we say sometimes programs are free, they don't show up. Like, I already have my degree. I don't know why I should... This kind of mentality. mentality is, they have to do a 360 degree turnaround. What do you think causes that? What do you think, because it seems as if it's not just, it's, it's not spotty, not just individuals, it's, it, it almost seems like it's a nationwide plague. And yeah, it's the way the society is structured. So, people tend to go to where there's opportunity. Right? Now, if the society is structured in a way that opportunities seems to have gone to people who were not deserving. Well, why would I make an effort when I know so many undeserving people that got it? See that? Mm -hmm. And then, again, opportunity would want to go towards industrialization. Well, we're not suggesting that we are going to be an industrialized nation in, I don't know, the next how many years. So all of these efforts would go towards, again, instant gratification. What can I do that would give me something now? There is that mentality. And then there's also the fact that sometimes people are just lazy and do not see. Again, the, the lack of the reading culture, the lack of uh, seeking for the right information, and then the, the refusal, the downright de denial of coming out of your comfort. Because the, the real juicy jobs that are found in these things require some gruesome exercises with your brain. It needs you to do a lot of gymnastics with your brain, work it around and understand and transform. It's a whole transformation of your person. 
Because I know so many places that need people to fill in spaces, but the qualified people are not there. It goes with the mindset, goes with a way of being, a way of thinking, and a way of giving oneself towards performance. So all of this whole performance mentality is kind of like a little bit absent. In, in, the, in the past decade, do you think it's improved or it's not changed at all? In I think your... it's worse. <laughs> <laughs> okay, why would you say that? <laughs> I think it's worse because I've seen us come from people who could even tinker, like they call it tinkering, right? Mm-hmm. We could tinker our holes and utensils and cut glasses and maybe... We even had people who tinkered buckets that would and shoes, like we're talking about shoes. the sobo shoes and, and producing uh, Yeah, I had my sobo shoes. So now finding myself with shoes that come from everywhere else except Jesus. <laughs> and then even the hose and the machetes come from everywhere else except here. So the jobs have all been flown through the windows and the skills that we had have not been transferred to anyone. And even the artisanals, basket making and things that could have been better now than before. We now have baskets that are imported from some place. So our own local materials lie there wasting. And some people are making market levels. So we became consumers. And then we just spend. And then we don't have any income generating stream. Sounds like a dire future. So why are you doing all this work then? If this is where we're heading towards you know, down. Well, someone must be saying something, even if your voice seems like muffling. <laughs> so it's better to muffle than to say nothing. <laughs> That's a very optimistic way of looking at the world, which is, yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's, it's beneficial. Someone has to say something. I don't have the power to shout, but I can muffle. Yep. And then upon muffling, maybe some person, some passerby would hear me muffling and stop by and say, why is she muffling? I think you have many passersby listening. I mean, <laughs> uh, your kids in school are already listening. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I want to find out too, because your, the way you were, you were, was it parented? The way you parented mm-hmm. affected the way you've grown up. Mm-hmm. Has it affected also the way you were parenting now? Of course. Okay. I can only give what I know or what I have. Yeah. <laughs> So are, are they very much interested in what you're doing? Are they doing so, their own thing? Okay, some, so. not all, but pretty much the do-it-yourself thing is very high in my house. I'm like, I'm not doing that for you, no way. <laughs> Go do it yourself. <laughs> so I don't wake you up from bed. I don't tell you when it's time to go to school. Well, you have to figure that out. Or, well, just sleep and go to no school. That's fine by me. Okay. Figure it out yourself. Uh. That's an interesting school of thought. I don't know whether many parents would be happy with that. I wish we were my mom. That would be nice. <laughs> well, you need to trek to school. I'm not oh, to okay, it's that. <laughs> Find your way to school. <laughs> okay. Well, because the school is not very far. So you can find your way. I mean, it's part of sport, right? Yeah, exercise. So you exercise yourself. Just walk to school. And then you will not always be there. That's one thing. On the line that kids... At age, well, my, I dropped my nursery school's uh, son in school because of the motorcycles now and the risk. But once you're maybe eight, nine, well, you need to battle it out with life. You need to figure out how to become streetwise. That is your world. I'm not going to put you in a car. You won't remain in my car forever. So you need to figure out these things now. 
and that is the those are the years when you begin to have your own kind of character formation you need to see those things early and and be able to know what danger means i can't have you tagging me every day you know go away go to live your life yeah. <laughs> if you um if you could go back to a couple of years maybe a couple of decades back and maybe change something or add something or remove something in your in your journey if you could look back mm-hmm. what would you change i would change my university okay so i came out from high school a sound person that was ready to take on the world and then the university kind of like wasn't that and then the university education again didn't give me what I really expected. I think they tried in a way, but like I said again, don't settle for less. Because most of it, I was lucky to have gone to university in Douala. So I did most of the compensation by working in companies. So as a student, I would always figure out a way to go and do something in some company. So I was very explorative and most times I was having companies where I'll go and put my documents and say I want to work, I want to do this. And then sometimes I'll be in school from in the morning hours and then at four I'll go off to some company because they, they had uh, shifts. Yeah. So I'll be doing the night shift in some company and no one Maybe that's another thing that added the technical skills. But I, I've pretty much not been someone that is quiet. I'm not a very quiet person. I mean, like, doing nothing, like being there and being happy that there's nothing around me. So I'm always like, what else can I do? I mean, you've been building uh, cages since you were little, so you knew what it means to be in a cage. Right. You don't want to be in one. You don't want to be in one. (laughs) And um, you're clearly very much invested in STEM. Your Mm -hmm. school, the work you do, I mean, the STEM boxes and everything. I mean, I know this sounds like a really stupid question, but I'm interested in it. Yes. Why not STEM for everybody? Why STEM for women mostly? Well, we have STEM for everybody. I started off really like being interested in women until I realized, well, men too. I'm going to have problems. And maybe the women aspect of it came as the fact that um, I also wanted to identify with people who were like me. I mean, you can't keep going on for long being few women who, who do these kind of things. I and mean, then it's not always easy to, to want to talk to men. You say, okay, there's a STEM program and you have 50 men and two women in a room. It's always embarrassing. You want to talk to them. First of all, the first of all, they'll be like, what is she saying <laughs> in the first place? So the women fall more or less, it's easier for us to commune and and it's easy for another woman to understand that it's okay, what you're saying is true. But a man will first of all start with, um, like, they would first of all give a 120 degree uh, break and yeah. say, okay, this is for doubts. And then now, let's start from uh, here. That's a very patriarchal way of looking at things. I mean, uh, I was patriarchal, like uh, the whole thing, like a woman cannot be telling me something that is right. Like she's definitely wrong somewhere, first of all, before she might be right. You know, it's it's um it's a it's a cultural aspect that most of us are fighting. Mm. It's almost unconscious that when a woman says something you you automatically think that she's wrong. Before thinking that she's wrong. You could write <laughs> <laughs> I 
have you had any instances? I'm sure many, but which one has stood out where you're like, oh, this guy would not even listen to me because I'm a woman. And I mean, when you start talking, for example, and you just find out that, oh, it's not, the problem is not what I'm saying, it's me. Have you had any, any yeah. of such? The, the there in that situation with grown-up men, that's, that has mostly been with my colleagues, my male colleagues who teach. Like the first thing is that they want to give you the easiest, like, well, this one is not too difficult, you can manage this, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, okay. In my first years, that was fine. I mean, who wouldn't want to take easy things? I was like, okay with it until at some point I'm like, so does it mean I cannot assert myself? And this guy is actually making fun of me by saying these things. So I would have my male colleagues who would carefully select and then feel that I may not be strong enough to want to handle some difficult things. Then when you want to tell them that, well, I think they were like, we're just being careful because you know you have babies and which was true in a sense because if you take some of those very tough and long hour courses and you have children it can be challenging sometimes to do the shuffle between children and then doing that and then some of them really needed you to be in the labs to prepare a practical lesson they would stay sometimes till 8 p.m in the labs because this work requires lab work so you don't just come teach without preparing, especially when it's practical. Which sometimes I truly do commend them for being that thoughtful. In a way, I mean, it's also nice for someone to, to take into account the fact that you cannot do the same. You do not come with the same um, problems. Like, in as much as you, you are in the same field, the expectations may not really be the same because of some constraints that you have as a woman, which is good they accommodate you as a woman but where it's clearly blatant is with students, senior students first thing you walk into the class they're like, what is she trying to teach, what, I mean like wait a minute, are you trying to teach us this same thing that we know and they would face you on that and then you have to figure out how to tell them yes and I know what I'm doing You've been doing that for years. Have you have you found a method that works or? Yeah, the method that really works is that you need to make sure that you don't make mistakes. Make sure your errors are really minimal before they would believe you. Any adolescent male, first of all, has problems with his own identity. Then you want to add some more, telling him that you're coming to teach him something you don't master. Well, he would face you. He would tell you a lot of things that may not be pleasant. Young kids in their, in their teens and in their 20s tend to want to challenge everyone. So that's a very obvious thing to expect from those age groups. Have you had any of such people turn around and become maybe your, either become a mentee or a collaborator or somebody you can now work with and you look fondly at the way you started and it was really different? Yes. Many of my students have become my colleagues because I started off really young. Many of my students have become my colleagues. Many of them maybe send me messages now we meet in different tech spaces. And uh, what I think they admire most is the transformation. Because I must say again that we, it's not been a, a static journey. So you see, what we teach in most of our courses are pretty old. 
and then I still do take time off to go back again and revisit new technologies, new things that are happening in our field, which are not necessarily directly linked to what I should be doing with these students. So you always on top of the game. So when they realize that you're somebody that does research and you're always trying to be on page, it's, it's sexy, they like it. I'm like, oh my gosh, this teacher knows what they're doing, huh? <laughs> right. Okay. If you could be Minister of Education, for example. Huh? If you could be. If, <laughs> Did you just say if that? If else. You know, we're doing, we're not doing conditional. Yeah, how can you say that to me? <laughs> it's part of, are you? No. Okay, yeah. I did, we are talking to the Minister of Culture and uh, Education. I didn't know. No, no. <laughs> Why wouldn't you want to be? Clearly, your education route overcomes everything else. I mean, you like tinkering and making things, but... I feel like you like to change the way people think about tinkering more yeah. than more than tinkering itself. Yeah. So what 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 you when you look at the educational landscape, you keep repeating the way people are taught, the way they're growing up, the way the culture is. Where would you uh, plug in the holes, fix, maybe change everything? Which new code would you rewrite? The game changer would be the educational code, okay. and in in the teachers, in the teachers. First thing, revisit the curriculum or the curricula, then figure out how to hold teachers accountable, like standardize many things. We cannot afford to compromise education in any situation, not at all. There should be some kind of standardization. Education should be really kind of like carefully set apart politics. We cannot say that the results for standardized tests at the end of the year were not up to whatever, and then we kind of like help students. So this whole thing has helped us have a very big amount of people who do not qualify. Walking the streets with diplomas at the same time like people who are geniuses. So it's actually defeating the whole purpose of competition. So, one, hold teachers accountable. Nobody actually checks these teachers sometimes. Nobody even cares what they do. We hold them accountable for their work. If you're doing something that is not correct, you are held accountable. There should be some kind of certification exam and teachers should certify and recertify and then standardize tests. Every student must not go through the same system of education. Every child is unique. They are gifted and talented students. We should take them off the same schools like children who are ordinary. We should do that. We should have schools for gifted and talented children, give them a different kind of orientation. Children who are average and can survive certain conditions, we orientate them. Students who are gifted with craft work and different kinds of things, we do the reorientation and equip. It, it makes sense. That way we can still have people who can make things, produce, and do stuff. I mean, think of it. It's a, a student who, who has been to school and has a degree would earn 60000 right? 60000 like... That's actually Or, 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 or a snake. Some of them are teaching in some... teaching in places and, and that's what most private schools would pay. Some below 100000 well, it's someone who is doing a job and is a mechanic or is doing handwork and all of those kind of like brain work that requires some kind of creativity makes 300,000 francs a month and more. 
or a builder. So why would we want to always reorientate people towards a direction? I'm not saying that education in itself is not good. But it makes more sense if we had some kind of education that had some entrepreneurship kind of reasoning in it. If we reason these things out with some kind of entrepreneurship, what is your value proposition with that degree? What are you offering? So what are you selling in the first place? If you are actually selling your brain, then you should know that you should be very good at selling that brain, not waiting for someone to come and tell you what to do, right? So if you've gone to school, it means that your value proposition is your brain power. It should be good. Don't complain when your boss fires you for being not productive because you came selling a brain. Now, if you are selling a skill, you've learned that skill, every other day they'll put cars in front of you to fix with different problems. Then it's your responsibility to diagnose and fix. Then how come those with degrees and having those papers are sitting in some office and waiting for who to fix what? What is their value proposition? That's the question. Alright. So first, keep teachers accountable. Yes. Second, standardized tests. Anything else, Mrs. Minister? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mindset. Okay. We have to work on the mindset. Third part is the mindset. We should already be able to see the future. As long as we would remain in a position of weakness economically, well, we'll always be conquered. And who rules is the person that has economic power. So we will always see ourselves, no matter how much we complain and cry, strong conquers the weak. Yeah. It's. I love the propositions, and what, what kept coming to my mind was how, what would your take be on the fact that we live in a community, in a country that has these two faces, and it's a question that most people are actually worried about answering, because every answer is wrong, no matter how much you put it. Mm -hmm. we, when you look at somebody, for example, who goes through the French educational system in Cameroon, and another person who goes through the English educational system in Cameroon, mm -hmm. and they come up at the end, they are two different ways of thinking, two different ways of looking at the world, even, and both might even apply for the same job. And the way they're taken for those jobs, or the way they work, the way they see the world is different. Do you face any difficulties in having kids, for example, from these two different kinds of backgrounds who come from a French-speaking home, a Francophone home, and an English-speaking home? How do you address these cultural differences, and what do you think would be a solution to such a situation, especially in terms of education and building economic power, not the political aspect of it? <sighs> What can I say? This is a difficult question. You want me to get difficult? Yes. Into trouble now. Oh <laughs> no, it's your point of view, it's not I mean, so, are you running for are you running for office at any point? Well maybe, who knows? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I would be fair enough to say that these are two different systems. Fundamentally these are complete different systems. Each of them with its own advantages and disadvantages. You understand? To say that one is better than the other is too much of... Uh, I don't know, because if one was really that bad, then maybe the people would not exist. So each of them has its advantages and disadvantages. While one system would have 
an advantage over the other in some ways, I still think that children who come to our programs who are from the French-speaking background, we kind of tell them that, well, there are certain things you need to unlearn and then relearn other things. I will talk about that one because it's something that I know and I'm used to. And I will tell them, well, in this kind of system, you are expected to think for yourself. Forget it. Nobody would think for you. So you have to unlearn having a teacher in front of you and then learn figuring out yourself and researching and understanding the thing yourself. So the challenges those students have sometimes is no matter how smart they may be, they still end up being very good with those subjects where they have to regurgitate. When it comes to those subjects where they would have to do critical thinking and analysis, it's sometimes challenging for them to analyze something and be able to come out with Not all. You, you always know that there are people who are gifted and talented and everybody cannot be put in the same mix. But if we take average students, in both cases, one would give you an answer that is a complete opposite of the other. Which means that fundamentally, there is a difference. And who says language says culture? And who says culture says personality? You understand? So those languages fundamentally, only the fact that you're speaking French or English gets you thinking in a particular way. Listen, you cannot speak French and then reason in English. No way. Fundamentally gives you some kind of identity. The basic language that you know and understand and master gives you some identity. So the first thing is that you reason in that language and then you act. Your curriculum, mm -hmm. does it account for that? Well, we focus more on the technical parts of it. And then, again, we are lucky in this case because computer remains a computer, French or English. Yeah, code and is code. Code is code. So you cannot fight, well, if you want to fight, fight with a machine. You can <laughs> fight anyone. You cannot, it's not literature. Yeah. So we are lucky we do not have to argue a lot with people. It's like, well, we don't know why it's not working. Maybe you have to figure out what you said. <laughs> if you're building a robot, well, the robot does no language. The only thing you can do with language with the robot is if you want it to speak. So choose your language you want it to speak. The rest of it is obvious. It's basic. It's clear. Yeah. So we are lucky. Okay. I'm really enjoying this conversation, so I'm going to have to call these two interesting people here to jump in with your questions because I think I have a few that I have left, but I'd like to hear what you want to find out from Janet. So let's see. You're engrossed and enjoying this. I feel that like you found a soul, a, a, a mother in Christ. More than a mother. <laughs> <laughs> I'm first of all happy that for this very first episode, we have a woman. I was, in fact, when they told me that we we're going to have a woman, I just told myself, okay, this is good. I'll be able to feel comfortable, yes. even though I always like to mention the fact that I love boys. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. Okay. I wanted to find out. For how long have you been running Tessa Academy? Ah. And uh, don't you think that it's time to spread to different parts of the country? Because I stumbled on an article which said that you're thinking of expanding to other African countries, but what about here in Cameroon? So, 
the Das Academy actually started nine years ago and has been more or less a pilot. Now, my idea is not to repeat in every part of the country because there are actually schools in every part of the country. We could actually empower other existing schools in those parts. If this model is actually working, which we would know in a few years to come, it's not obvious to say that we are succeeding and not too sure. So we need to be able to see what are the results, the outcome of this pilot. Where do our students stand at the end of five years so we can see the kind of men and people we've been able to put out to the public. We can now use the same kind of models to be able to put in different schools that exist can use our curriculum. Because it's basically a curriculum. They're the same teachers, they're the same students, they're the same people. But the curriculum, the model, the way of doing it is what we are actually selling. So going to build the new schools. That okay. I found out that 60% of the population is made up of girls. Mm -hmm. And now you mentioned a few challenges that you have had to overcome as a woman. And apart from tech, what are the other values? Is there any preferential treatment to them as women? For them to think in a certain way because they might always have to be reminded that they are a woman so are there certain things apart from the tech are there certain things that you add to the curriculum that is being presented in school like maybe mental health we spoke a lot about the reading culture we're still having problems with that and uh, feminism and sex education and all of those kind of things um I would say again that we are really very science, technology, engineering, and math focused. There's little room when you pick something that big to want to do other things. I think sex, uh, oh, it's in the curriculum. We are looking at things that do not even exist at all. There is citizenship, there is all, all those things are in the curriculum and every day there's someone telling them and asking them to repeat that. And then there's <laughs> always people coming to say that, oh, if you're a girl, there's domestic science, hygiene. Well, if they're not remembering those, it means that someone's not doing their job. But where we want these students, not even say girls or boys, students, to know is that the future of their jobs it's in those areas, and it's how skilled you become. We even put aspects of art, like beads, some do make beads, some do make simple things if they want. We are not a technical school, but it's just to let them know that the world that they are going to be given tomorrow, and you know that, that the legacy of their new world is based on those things. And if we, me and you are sitting here today with phones without even knowing how these phones function. But someone didn't tell us that phones are coming. And this is what phones will do to us. And some phones can be smart. And this is how it would affect our lives. So I've just decided that, okay, now, what if these students knew these kind of things? And what if they could see? You know, oh, think of it. Look at it this way. These are all students that are excited every time they see Captain America, they see Superman, they see sci-fi, they see all of those things. 
they see Robocop and then they tell you something about Stoneman and all of those things. But do you realize that all these scientific things that catch, captivates their interest and makes them dream, there's hardly anyone who tells them that, well, you can do that. Nobody. So it's like, oh my gosh, who, who designed that? Who did that? But think for one moment, if you give a child the power to be able to sit beside the computer and then Photoshop, let's just say Photoshop, images, animate them and make their own kind of movie. You know how much power that is? Owning a skill, owning something that you can do, make it out of your own brain, it's powerful. I mean, we're not doing something magical. We just like, you have this thing, there's power in it, use it. Giving that small life to some brain that is maybe just sitting there and trying to go pay 50 francs to watch a movie that you can make. See the difference? That's it. It's not rocket science. It's just ordinary things every day. And it's painful to know that I was making that TV box with those animations, if I, it's painful to know that if I had a computer, I would have done it. <laughs> but anyways, it still works. <laughs> yeah. And then they, I didn't tell you the day they caught us with the TV, but we were beaten. <laughs> of course. <laughs> because we were using a candle and oh. we went to burn down the house. <laughs> yes. Oh. Are there any things that your students have created that you're really proud of? My students have created quite some things, especially games. Games, websites, they're robots, they build robots and take them off and do different things. But I think we are transitioning towards uh, using local things to make more, so that we can actually make an own. Like if you use something that you find locally and then you build something out of it. And again, the whole idea, I don't want to put my focus on building something for the market. We all know that it's a very competitive market and these are students. So we want to give them as much information and knowledge as we can so that as they grow, they can now at each level be able to have. Because it's already challenging in itself to, to want to take people from nowhere to somewhere. So to tell, it would be too ambitious to tell you that we are looking for students who are going to build products for the market. The market is quite uh, saturated, not even saturated, but it's competitive in a way that, okay, if you already have an idea that is marketable, we will just take you to an incubator stage and incubate the idea. But for now, we want to reach as many people as possible to have the what, what we call the foundational knowledge. From there, as they grow, knowing that they need their normal standardized exams and tests, they would be able to use the foundational knowledge to start creating at some point in time. But now we are really focusing on having them own the skill. How good are they at pitching their ideas? And how often do they go from the level of pitching their ideas to actually the incubation? So, we, we don't have, uh, most times living programs do even absorb them. Like we had two that were very good, and where they've already traveled to some other countries with their ideas and the things that they had to do. But 
I'm not too sure if they want to pitch these ideas because it needs a lot of fine-tuning and again the things that they are doing are not really too product oriented like the students who would have products most of the times are students who are other projects with the incubator center like the university students who would have uh, artificial intelligence systems and different kinds of things that they want to do and internet of things mostly but the ones in the secondary and high school stage are mostly doing competitions right now and working for school school leagues and doing international competitions in robotics and things like that and then building robots and programming them and programming them and doing things like that just like ordinary things that people would do in a school but to say that at their ages they have products to pitch I'm not too sure because they don't even have time because they're doing that parallel to school work this is um, a typical scenario because a lot of things that you say, for most of us, it makes sense because we read a lot. Unfortunately, we've had parents who forced us to push ourselves to our limits. And we, we certain things is just, it's like an echo chamber. We know that we should find a way to do things. We know that we should, we should work harder. We know that we should open our minds, get the skills. But now there's this young girl who's listening. She fell on back cast and she's listening to the episode and she's very excited to hear that it's a woman who does things with science and technology and everything. And she wants to be able to live from where she is right now, maybe in an environment or a community that doesn't exactly celebrate her interests or exploration skills. What would you tell this young lady who is 13 years old and is in school and she's bored to death because she cannot be left alone to build things? How would you, what would you tell her? Hmm. 13? Yeah. Uh, well, let me see. I think at 13, there's a lot already to do. In your physics class. In the yeah, 13, you have your physics class, you have your chemistry class, and then you have even your domestic science class. Those are classes that are really very practical and hands-on. And even in the textbook, you can find a lot of science things that you can do around your community. Again, if you are in that community where you feel that you are being stopped from doing this or whatever thing it is or you have uh, little resources then I'll imagine that you are in the same kind of community I grew up in where most of those things look distant and they felt distant because if you are in the city the chances that you would actually come across even at school programs that are very 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 hands-on and it's very hard. City schools tend to have programs like that you have clubs you have all of those things even textbooks that but if you are in a remote area with limited resources, I'm sure your textbooks, there are some books. Even if you did not have textbooks from the time you enrolled in school, you would find books in the school library. Because I know another place that we used to use a lot was the school library. And we're always fascinated by some books that had science experiments in them. You would turn those pages of those science experiments and you're always baffled by the things people were doing and you're like, oh, is this real? Yes. And they had very, and they went with pictures. And then, did I also tell you that I cook very well? Oh, that didn't come up. Okay. okay. So even the things I would see in books, I'll try to mimic them and cook and make those leaves and put them like that, like when I see someone. <laughs> <laughs> 
I would wonder how these people would make this food to look like this. Mm-hmm. And I would struggle, I would try to make mine also like that. And then I was always turning quickly to the recipe pages to see what did they put. And I would even ask questions, what is this thing? I've never heard of this thing before. <laughs> so it's curiosity. When you're curious, there's no limit to what you can do. You mentioned the fact uh, when, when Mark asked about... Um, your kids and how they're pitching ideas and they're still really young at the level where maybe the ideas are not yet pitchable. Mm. But I, I suppose you've had the opportunity to probably sit on boards or listen to other people pitch ideas or get an idea of how people pitch and be the ecosystem, the technology ecosystem of the country which is now burgeoning. I mean you have startups from everywhere with the Silicon Mountain and Active Spaces and all these incubators in Cameroon. I'd like to get your, your personal take about the, the role of incubators in getting these ideas to come to life and what do you think about Cameroon's specific nature? Do you think that we have done some work at that level to get ideas from heads to actual products in the community or is there much work to be done? What is your take on these incubators and everything that's happening around technology in Cameroon? So, again, my students had the opportunity to do some pitchings with the STEM Prize with the Borussia Foundation, which I think that is the level for those kind of leagues, which is a bit lower than what incubators and uh, the startup culture is all about. But again, the startup scene in Cameroon is quite interesting. It's interesting because to me, again, I do not, I'm not being critical, but I'm still trying to understand how and what kind of products would really work here. In my opinion, I've always said many times that two things go together in the tech ecosystem, the builders and the programmers. If you build something, then you, together you can program it. Now, um, we've seen our ecosystem focus a lot on software development and building applications for things, which again, with our internet penetration and the cultures we have, people are not too app-oriented. And then we have the telcos that are like big, yeah, like, like, I don't know how to say it, I'm not trying to be rude, but the telcos own the market because they have the data. From the moment you want to venture to start building applications, you need to first of all answer the questions of data. How do you get data to feed that app? Because applications run on data. Now. Who says data, says users, says people from whom you've collected information? If you are a startup, look at me here, sitting here. How many people can I go start and start talking to and collect data from them? And on what basis? I mean, how do I get data to be able to feed a real viable app? So the telcos tend to own almost everything. Sometimes it's not like the telcos actually buy your app from you and then use it to run their systems. It's like you come up with this brilliant idea and then, well, they just get rid of it and then they just replicate it and it's in their system. So it's very challenging, especially as we are more focused on building applications, which is pretty much straightforward and then you just have your computer and your brain. But again, I still strongly believe that it's a community that requires actually building technologies. We will not have startups with only apps function. We have real problems that are technology, skill, 
physical things that can be built. Like what? Say for agriculture. Just think about how difficult it is the agricultural system. Do you know that we still farm like 600 years ago? Do you know that? You see that when you pass by between towns and you're watching the farms on the side. It's almost uh, the same things. Tilling, planting, yeah. harvesting. Yeah. And then would you say that, well, the other people, they farm because they have tractors? I, I, I guess no. So there could be some mechanism, there could be some small device that could do farming, where farmers could buy and could do different things. I just think if we were thinking differently, we would have come up with different kind of mechanical devices that could do things differently. So I think there's some misunderstanding about what startups here in this culture should be. It's not about applications. Startups is not application. It's not synonymous to applications. We have a lot of problems in agriculture, we have lots of problems in infrastructure and in transportation. We have lots of problems even in hygiene. Hygiene, look at all the slurry that is oozing out on the street. So what if we were actually, again, building real things? Because the problems here are real. They are real. There's no reason why we have that slurry on the streets. Well, if you had a billboard you could put anywhere in the world, first, where would you put the billboard? And second, what would you write on it? Well, I'll put my first billboard in Cameroon. Where precisely? For Santa. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what would he say? And he's going to say, I think, I create, I build. Why Po Santa? Because <laughs> <laughs> okay. when I look at the population that just circulates around that place, it's like it's never ending. Okay. So I'm going to have many people. Well, maybe it could be in Dwala. Because Dwala, the streets are always loaded with crowds. Yeah. <laughs> could be Dwala, a Daido, somewhere around Dwala, Daido. And I'm going to put like, innovate for your country, something like that. Okay. Think, be different, be unique. Why do we want to be like everyone else? Well, things like that. I mean, those kind of things that will not make you want to remain on your bed. Till <laughs> <laughs> 7 a.m. So is there something that I might have, we might have left out, something that you'd like our audience to know? Yes, no, you didn't leave out anything, but... I think it would be nice if the audience knew that anything you want to do for yourself is possible. Like, you think it, then, if you can think it, then you can do it. And not all the time do we need every, everything to come into place before we can do something. It's actually, nothing ever happens because you have everything in place. It's actually when you're doing the thing and then you keep falling and waking up and figuring out your way. You just don't say, okay, when I'll have 10,000 friends, then I will. Well, I really don't have 10,000 friends and I'm really trying to do this thing. So what can I do without 10,000 friends? That's where you should start your thinking. Like, okay, I am at minus, so how can I go to plus? So that's how it, the journey begins. Okay. First of all, acknowledging where you are, then creating a path. 
Okay. There's a lot of power in deciding, in having a will. I'm just sometimes embarrassed when people say that. I couldn't do this because I then I've heard this thing many times. Have you ever heard someone who says, if my uncle was somebody, somebody. <laughs> <laughs> if my uncle was somebody, I would have been somebody. Or if my parents were some people to I too, I would have. So, really? Well, you just start by being somebody yourself, so somebody will be somebody. So your kids who can say, my father is somebody, so I will be somebody. Well, you start being someone. Yeah. Starts with you. Yeah. Okay. Where can we find you online? Are you on social media? Do you use the internet a lot? What's your favorite app, actually? Yeah, I don't know. Okay, calculator now. Calculator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my favorite app, who's that? It's WhatsApp? No. <laughs> <laughs> Might not be the one you use the most. Might be the one you actually use more, you know, for email. work. Email. Okay, so email. Gmail or Yahoo? Or both. Okay. Both. I'm sorry, you're a Gmail person. That's okay. Both, both. <laughs> both ways. I'm even less Gmail. Ah. No, I do, but it's just I'm um, old school. Okay. That tells you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm old school and then habits die. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes. And I do some Facebook, I do some WhatsApp, and then some Twitter. Some because at times I'm completely not there. Because if you have things to do, you will not have time. And what are you actually currently working on that you might need some? Somebody might be listening right now who is probably the piece you need. You know, you, do, you say you don't need to have everything that you need to start. Yes. You've definitely already started. So what are you working on now that you might need some piece somewhere? So right now we are trying to build teams for robotics and a lot of creative space. We have a maker space we are working on at Sineo. And we need builders and creators to come together and have this happy place of makers and builders. Stuff. Even if you don't know how to build and you're interested, well, just come and put on your YouTube and then you will find that dream thing you want to build and then you start building it. But most of all, don't come and ask someone to come build for you because it's about... So I do not build for anyone. I don't, I don't, I don't even have time most times to come and start telling you, well, go left, go right. Because we have all kinds of teachers online today. So there's no excuse. So you see, your phone is just another robot. When you tell him, please, go to YouTube. Find someone who can make a device that can do whatever thing. He does that without complaining. But imagine you had me there. You're angry. Yeah. Become an angry black <laughs> Okay. Yeah, you're wasting my time. You're not understanding. But you see, the YouTube teacher or whatever site teacher you choose is never tired. They're always telling you the same thing. Over and over. Over and over. So do they send an email? Do you have a website already that you can check on to apply or to find a way to get to see me? Yeah, we have a website. Um, www.nextgentechs.org Okay. Yes. I guess we'll find everything there. Yes. All right. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. It's been an amazing thank experience. You. I hope we'll get you one day on the podcast again to talk about some other things. Probably, hopefully, not in a decade, because uh, yeah, within within now and in time that the, your students will be bringing products and actually solving community problems, that'll be awesome. Right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Yes. yes. Mark. That's a wrap. Mm-hmm.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Make sure you subscribe to our newsletter and leave a comment. Until next time, I'm your host, Leslie Mayer.